listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Seemingly, for me, a more solemn time in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 22, we're just a few hours from our Lord Jesus going uh, to be crucified, to shed his blood, to die for your sin and for my sin. And we see that being unfolded for us around the theme of Passover. And Lane has already read the passage, and I want to dive right in to the text this morning and break it down into three sections today um, so that we can hopefully understand it better and walk away uh, with some application for our lives. How should uh, the Passover meal, this Passover meal, impact how we look at uh, the bread and the juice that's here today? Um, My heart is heavy. Many of you have uh, experienced, uh, I've had at least four people in the past Uh, Just a few hours that have just gone uh, out into eternity. Uh, Some that I've known for years, uh, some that passed suddenly. Um, And those things should sober us. And then a friend of mine sent me a a video clip of some people that he's trying to plant churches among in Ghana. And he's an American pastor, and he's just going on his own and establishing relationships there. Um, And these uh, men were sitting in the dark in a room with the light of a phone to light the reading of the scriptures. And so you've got this one guy that's reading and talking, and you've got these people that are filling this room that are gathered around to hear uh, the the word of God. And they were so hungry for it. It meant so much to them. Uh, I, I don't think that the scriptures that we're looking at this morning are any less important than the scriptures that those men were looking at. Yesterday when Jimmy sent that video to me. Um, But there's a difference in uh, the belief and in the faith and in the hunger and in the desperation. And may God give us desperate hearts for the truth of his word. May God give us desperate, desperate hearts to understand the scriptures and what Jesus is trying to tell us today. The first thing we see in verses 1 to 6 in this text is the Passover plot and the plan of God. The Passover plot and the plan of God. You can see right off the bat. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. As they saw that coming near, the chief chief priest and the scribes were uh, just obsessed with putting Jesus to death. But they had an obstacle. Jesus was popular among the people, and they were scared of the people. And, of course, uh, Judas was entered by Satan, and he uh, obliged them in that process and cooperated with them. But let me try to break it down and help us understand it broadly um, so that we can, as the point of the arrow uh, gets sharper as we look further, as Jesus is talking about the Passover meal to his disciples, as he looks back to Exodus 12 and as he looks forward uh, to drinking this wine new in the kingdom, we can understand what ha- what's happening in that moment. I think a valid question we need to ask is, what is the Passover? What is the Passover? 
And, and we, we understand Israel's history. We understand we go to Genesis 3 and we've got Adam and Eve. We move uh, forward and you come to Genesis 6 and the world's heavily populated. It's in a massive mess and there's a worldwide Flood coming out of the flood, there are eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, and they begin to repopulate the earth. By the time we come to Genesis 11, we've got people in rebellion. They're building this massive tower, and so God says, i got to stop these people, and so he confounds the languages, and people begin to move to different parts of the planet, and we see the establishment of different nations. And out of that, at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis, we see uh, this guy named Abram come on the scene. And in Genesis chapter 12, Abram has this unique relationship with God. Abram is uh, a man, obviously, who has some form of faith in the promises of God. And so Abram comes on the scene, and this is going to be the building block, the foundation for this nation that God is later going to establish that's going to experience the Passover. As we continue through Genesis, we see, we see Abraham, and Abraham has a son named Isaac. He also has a son named Ishmael. Ishmael uh, plays a prominent role. One son is the son of promise. One son is not. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And again, we see um, this, this promise continuing through Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is Joseph. And the brothers take Joseph, put him in a pit, sell him into slavery. They think Joseph is dead. Joseph ends up in Egypt in a prominent position with Pharaoh, and while all of that's going on, Jacob and his other sons, or the rest of his family, which by the time they moved to Egypt ended up being about 70 or so people, is they're experiencing famine. So they're like, where are we going to go? Well, Joseph has instituted this plan where there's going to be this storage of resources for a certain number of years, and the world is now going to Egypt to get food. So now Jacob, Joseph's dad, his brothers, they end up going to get food, and through that transaction, these people who will later become the Hebrew people end up going to Egypt and setting up in the land of Goshen, and they're, they're shepherds. And so over the, the course of 400 years, these Hebrew people grow. They become enslaved by the Egyptians, and they start crying out to God. And God hears them. By the time you come to the book of Exodus, a guy named Moses comes on the scene. Moses has already been involved with the leadership in Egypt. Moses finds himself out in the desert standing before a burning bush and God telling Moses, who perhaps has some type of speech issue and a fear of man, doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. He wants him to go and challenge Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Pharaoh is reluctant nine different times. Nine plagues that represent uh, nine of the deities of Egypt are defeated at every turn by the God of this man Moses and the Hebrew people. And finally, the tenth plague is going to be the death angel is going to pass through. But God communicates to his people, look, here's what I want you to do. Before this death angel passes through, I want you to go take a, a lamb without spot and without blemish, and I want you to bring it into your home, and I want you to keep it in your home and treat it as a pet for a certain period of time. And then on a certain day, I want you to kill that lamb. 
I want you to take its life, this perfect lamb, this lamb without blemish, this innocent lamb that hasn't done anything wrong and doesn't deserve to be killed. I want you to take that lamb. I want you to kill it. And I want you to prepare the meat of that lamb and go through these ceremonies. But here's the main thing I want you to do. I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel of death passes through, when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. That's the Passover. That's the Passover. When this angel sees the blood that represents the death of an animal as a substitute standing in the place of these sinful people, they don't die because something has already died in their place. When all that happened, the firstborn of the Egyptians died. The Hebrew people lived. Pharaoh said, I've had enough. Moses kept saying, let my people go. Finally, Pharaoh says, you may go. And they were set free from bondage as a result of the Passover. So there was great liberation for the people of Israel. So when we come to the Passover, that's what they're celebrating. They're celebrating and looking back to what happened in the past, and then they take these, uh, these items that they use for the ceremony, and there are more items than just bread and wine, and they use these items to help them visually and by touch and by taste get connected to what happened hundreds of years before. That's the Passover. The death of a lamb, the blood on a doorpost, the death of the Egyptian firstborn, the tenth plague, the, the victory of God, the victory of the God of the Hebrews over the Egyptians, the release from 400 years of slavery, and them taking the time. And that's what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're taking the time to remember their freedom from bondage. But a second question we need to ask is this. What did the Passover point to? So we know the Passover pointed back, but when the Passover was instituted, the Passover literally pointed to something in the future. What did it point to? And I'm reminded of, of, of John when he saw Jesus, and he said, Behold, John 1.29, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Passover looks back to their freedom from slavery, but the Passover looked forward even from its inception to the coming of the Lamb of God, the Messiah, who would be the perfect Lamb, perfectly loved by the Father, and He would be sacrificed, His blood would be shed, His life would be poured out, and it would satisfy sin's debt Sin's debt of death for mankind and the crucified, sacrificed lamb would be raised from the dead. You can read Revelation chapter 5. They see a lamb standing as though it has been slain, but he is alive. He is risen victorious over death and sin has been defeated. And if you trust in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you too can be delivered from sin's slavery, sin's bondage, and sin's death. And there is no other way. If you are not in Christ this morning, you are in sin. If you are not in Christ this morning, you are in bondage. If you are not in Christ this morning, you will die in your sin. So what is the Passover and what does the Passover point to? And then in the text we see the, the chief priests scurrying around. What are they doing? 
Well, um, I believe the chief priests are, are they're trying to get it right. They're trying to get it right. They believe that they're doing a good thing. Jesus has got it wrong. Jesus is breaking their rules. Jesus is running through all of their, their stop signs and not even slowing down for their yield signs. Jesus has got it wrong. They are trying to get it right. They're defending, as far as they're concerned, the institution that God has established, this nation and their worship of God. Uh, they are honoring the word of God. Jesus is breaking the word of God. And so uh, understand, these guys weren't sitting around saying, we want to put on this front that says we're holy and love God, but really we want to be assassins. They really believed that they were doing a good thing by eliminating Jesus Christ, but we also know from the text that they were motivated by a desire for power and popularity. They were motivated by a desire for importance and control. They were motivated by a desire to be respected by the people which they weren't. And they were infuriated with Jesus and his ragtag group of unofficial, untrained, unapproved, uncertified misfits. That's why John chapter 1 tells us that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Jesus Christ, born of woman, born of a Jew, coming as the Messiah, came unto his own people and his own people would not receive him. But John 1:10 as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. You don't have to be born an Israelite. You don't have to be a Hebrew. You can come to him in faith and you can become a son of God. But there's more to the chief priests and the scribes. I believe that they are also in their planning and their scheming, thinking they're doing things right. I also believe that they are bound by the sovereign hand of God. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that, that there is going to be a child born and Satan is going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush his head. And this is right now before us at the death of Christ, the culmination of the promise of Genesis 3 where a deliverer will come and his heel will be bruised, but the head of the enemy will be crushed. And that's what's going to be taking place before us. And the sovereign hand of God is moving to bring this to fruition. Salvation history is right on schedule and if you'll study salvation history compare it to the word of God compare it to prophecy compare it to the lives of those that have trusted Christ you will see something that is absolutely astounding you see the Passover that they're looking forward to in their desire to eliminate Jesus is the very Passover that points to Jesus himself and so we see God's sovereign hand moving even in the, in the actions of the chief priest a fourth question is this, how did the chief priest flesh out their plan? Well, they fleshed out their plan by being in cahoots with Satan, and they didn't even know it. There was a man named Judas, an insider with Jesus and his crew, and Judas was willing to be a spy. Judas was willing to help assemble a plot to assassinate Jesus. Now, we know a little bit about Jesus, Judas. What's his backstory? The backstory of Judas is this, that Judas has got a problem with money. Judas was concerned about how they were using some of the resources. And Judas always had an alternative plan. Well, the money could have been used for this. Judas had a problem. Judas had a weakness. Judas had a desire for money and a desire for more money. The desire for money is never satisfied with the acquisition of money we always want more. And that's important in the text. Judas, obviously, on some level, I don't know why, had some contempt for Jesus. 
Judas could not deny the character of Jesus. He could not deny the miracles of Jesus. He could not deny the power of Jesus. He could not deny that Jesus was very God of God. But there was something about his love for money and something that happened that created this contempt in his heart for Jesus that uh, allowed a hook to be set that Satan could grab onto and use in Judas's life. We need to understand that I would imagine that the chief priest and the scribes saw Judas as a gift from God. I would imagine they saw him as an open door. Look at what God has done by bringing Judas to us. They saw it as the providence of God that someone would want to come and help them. They saw it as the favor of God. But the text very quickly moves to help us understand that Satan, Satan, not a demon, entered into Judas. We need to understand that this was sin's greatest hour and it called for hell's best. Satan Satan could not send an associate. He had to go himself to make sure that the job was done right. Make sure that the deal was finally closed. Make sure that the plan of God's salvation for those who would believe in Christ could be shut down and men could stay in their sins and die in their sins and that Jesus Christ would find himself in the grave forever. Salvation would be vanquished and mankind will forever be hopelessly enslaved to sin and destined for eternity in hell. So Satan Saddles up, heads to uh, Jerusalem right there at Passover week. And he himself enters this man to finally, to finally overthrow the plan of God. He's been trying it throughout salvation history at every turn. Even in the life of Jesus, right? In the wilderness, he takes him up. I promise you this. What is he trying to do? He's trying to stop the plan of God to, to save mankind And so the chief priest and the prince of darkness, once the plan is hatched, the text tells us that they celebrated together. They were filled with joy. They could not contain themselves. The plot was anxiously awaiting the perfect circumstance to betray. And the word betray is a striking word. It's a sobering word. The one who betrayed Jesus was one who was invited, one who was included, one who was close to the Son of God, who was taught and fed and filled with power and no doubt with the other disciples, probably performed miracles, and more than anything else, he was loved by Jesus Christ. And for some flimsy reason, he becomes history's ultimate betrayer, so much so That when we think of a betrayer, we think of Judas. And if we want to call somebody a betrayer, we will call them a Judas. Very few people, I don't know of anyone, that names their child Judas. You might name your uh, overweight and overly aggressive Doberman Pinscher Judas. But we don't name our children Judas because that is synonymous with betrayal. And so Judas is... He's working things. He's got an eye. He's got his ear to the ground. He's, he's listening. He's looking for the perfect place. He's looking for the perfect time. He's spying on every conversation. And he could not wait to hear 30 pieces of silver jingling in his money bag because he loved the money so much that he lost sight of everything around him. And if we're not careful, it will do the same thing 
to us. So the plan was set. That's the Passover plot and the plan of God, verses 1 to 6. The second thing we see in the text is this, the Passover protection and preparation. In other words, I'm quite certain that Jesus either, uh, you know, by sovereign just intuition uh, because he is God or um, maybe he heard, I don't know, but Jesus was aware of what Uh, Judas was trying to do, so Jesus wanted to make sure that nothing came between him and this final meal. We've got to understand, Jesus has been teaching, right? He spends 18 months teaching and preparing, and then he spends 18 months um, moving them on the journey to Jerusalem for this very moment. And so the, the final teaching, official teaching moment is going to take place at this Passover meal that they're going to experience. And so Jesus is going to make sure nothing Nothing gets in the way of him explaining to them what the Passover really meant, but also having the last supper, and that's what they're going to do, but also having the first communion, right? And, and those two things are happening simultaneously, looking back and looking forward. And so let's look at this protection and preparation. And, and we see uh, three things. First of all, there is an address that nobody knows, but Jesus has already evidently made arrangements or in some way has somebody that is waiting. And you can see it beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. And then they ask, where is that going to be? He hadn't told them. He hadn't told them yet. He didn't give them an address. He said, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That was highly unusual. If, if somebody was going to be carrying a jar of water, it was probably in this culture going to be a woman. I'm not suggesting women in this culture should be the ones that carry water. But in that culture, that's what happened. But they saw a man carrying water. He said, follow him. You don't know where it's going to be. Just follow that man. So these two men, without their cell phones, without without their walkie-talkies, without smoke signals, without uh, homing pigeons to send out a a message to uh, Judas, all of a sudden now find out where the place is, and they go into that place, and they make preparation. So there's this secret address. There's this specific signal, and there is this secured meal in verse number 13, and Jesus knows where it is, and nobody else knows, and nobody will know until they get there. This time with the disciples was critical for them. It was critical as their last occasion of formal gathered training, and Jesus used the culmination of salvation history embodied in two very simple common symbols to etch the gospel into their minds for the future of the church. And they are the same symbols that we would place before us this morning to bring us back to our sin and his redemption and our cleansing, our complete cleansing and freedom if we are in relationship with Jesus Christ and if we are resting on his finished work. So we see, we see the plot and the plan of God, men plot, God plans, God wins. Secondly, we see the, the Passover and it being protected and the preparations that are made. But then finally, and I think the bulk of the text, and the thing that weighs heaviest on my heart this morning, but also the thing that gives me the greatest joy this morning in the text, is uh, the Passover participation and interpretation. 
They are, partic- they are participating in the Passover, but Jesus is interpreting the Passover. Certainly they understand the Passover past. They understand what it all means. I don't think they understood what it all pointed to or where it's all headed. But Jesus is going to open their eyes. So we find ourselves in verse 15, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Um, those are, uh, it's not like the table that you see. Who, who painted that picture of the, does anybody know? Leonardo da Vinci. There you go. Painted this, and they're all like kind of sitting around. These guys are reclining. They're laying down to eat. I can't imagine laying down to eat. I don't like to lay on the sofa to eat. I want to sit up to eat. Um, But these guys were reclining at table. It was something that they did in their culture. And the apostles were with him. And and I want you to to notice right off the bat um, in verse number 15, uh, the connection that Jesus has with his disciples. Um, We've we've got to hear these words of love and affection. We've got to hear these words of closeness. We've got to hear these words of desire. If if we miss that, we miss the life, the ministry, the sacrifice of our Lord. Um, He he longs, he says, I have earnestly desired, I deeply long to the depth of my being to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer, Jesus is now repeating what he said many times before. He is going to suffer. He is going to die. He tells us in the text that his life is going to be poured out. His body is going to be given for them. Jesus is going to die. But let us not miss the the connection. Listen to his heart for those who are his. Listen to his heart. Just, just, Just sit in that for a minute. Jesus is saying, I, I want to be with you in this intimate, quiet setting where we can shut out the world and I can reveal my heart and will for you. At the perfect time, Jesus sat down with the twelve, one writer has said, and patiently served them a simple meal and did the most significant teaching of his entire ministry through service, love, and symbol. Jesus is using these symbols to communicate his love to them and his desire for them to understand that. Jesus is telling them, I I, I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know what I'm going to do to save you. I want you to know how this will impact your life. And I want you to know how this will impact the world. So this is, this is critical, his connection to them. Don't read the scriptures and don't look at the gospel as some cold, sterile transaction that takes place. Let us feel in this moment a connection. And by the way, when we stop at the end of a service and say, hey, we're going to do this thing that we do every week, there's no magic in this bread and this juice. You're not going to drink it and have tingles run up and down your spine. But the thing that we should remember is the love of our Lord for us and his desire to be in relationship and fellowship with us and the price that he paid so that we could be with him. 
and, and the, the, the deep, deep love that you long for in your heart to be loved with can only be satisfied with the love that Christ has for you. And it is in that moment that we accept this deep love and connection with him that we then are free to love one another in a beautiful way that the world looks at and says, what in the world happened to you? Why are you so loving? Why is there so much energy and power coming out of you? It is because we understand his desire and the magnitude of his connection with us. The, the second thing we see is not only his connection, but we see the culmination of his work on earth. He said, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before uh, I suffer. So these words are critical. This Passover, this specific Passover, this last Passover that I'm going to eat, and I'm going to eat it with you. And I'm going to eat this Passover before, before I suffer. This is the last supper. This is the final Passover lamb. There will not be a need for any more Passover lambs. This is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Sin's debt will be, be finally and fully paid. God's people will be finally and fully set free from sin once and for all, never to be charged or condemned again, all because of all that Jesus Christ would suffer. And in this, his disciples would realize their cleansing, their connection to the Father through the Son, and their calling to tell the world. When you come this morning to this stand, we call it a table, we call it a meal, you need to stop and understand the love of Christ for you. But you need to stop and understand that because of what Christ did, you are clean. You are clean. We walk in here today with shame and guilt. We're used to it. We're just used to it. It's the way we operate. I've had a couple of days of just struggling. I got up this morning driving over here just struggling with the accuser, just saying things to me in my mind over and over again and, and just, just poking me. You say, well, what have you done? It's really not anything that I've done. It's just a sense of yeah, I, I'm not good enough. No, I've got, I've got this past that I'm not proud of. And, yes, I have things in the moment that, that certainly are sinful, whether they're thoughts or their actions or their attitudes or, or my attitude toward my wife or you name it, you create it in an entire list. And then Satan takes those things, he pulls them together, and he, he just replays them over and over in your mind, and he, he pokes us and he hits us with shame, and, and I want to self-justify, and I want to hide, and I want to cover it with fig leaves. And Jesus says, you're clean. Am I clean because I'm good? <laughs> Am I clean because I perform well? <laughs> no. No, and neither are you. We're clean because of what he's done. This is the culmination of his work on earth. But he tells us in verse 16, he says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is anticipating 
the future. He's anticipating their reunion. He's anticipating the anticipation of salvation and redemption being fully realized and the fullness of his kingdom and all of its glory. You see, uh, perhaps you're saved and perhaps you're going to come take communion this morning and you're going to remember all that Christ has done and you're going to recognize that you are clean and you're going to say to the accuser, no, I have been cleansed. And you're going to have these conversations with his lies that he's bringing against you and some of it he brings really good evidence. He brings really good evidence for our guilt and, and, and our punishment. But Christ bore that guilt. Christ bore that shame. Christ bore that punishment. And we have been set free. But we're going to struggle with these things in this life. But there's coming a time when the, the fulfillment of all that salvation has within it is going to be experienced by us. And Jesus is looking forward to that. And we should be living for that point in the future and preparing for that now. And so he anticipates the future, but then he, he's, we see the celebration, the fourth thing in the text, through symbols, experience, sight, taste, touch, and the unity of these disciples together. We see the presence of his spirit. We see the outpouring of his grace in verses 17 and 18. Look at those verses with me, if you will. And he took a cup, and we did, when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. It's the cup of thanksgiving. It's the cup of thanksgiving. And, and most commentators would say that there are more, more, cup, more than one cup in this passage, that, that he's going back to the Passover and the four cups that are involved with that and moving us into the future and preparing us for what 1 Corinthians would tell us is the way that the church is doing communion as opposed to celebrating the Passover, although it points back to the Passover. So the first thing is the cup of thanks. He's looking back to the Passover. He's looking back to the Passover lamb. He's looking back to the shed blood of the lamb and the blood on the doorpost and the freedom that is experienced. And he's saying this is the last supper. He's looking to the bread in verse number 19. And there are a couple of ways of looking at the bread as he distributes it to them. We can look at this distribution of the body of Christ that we are all the body of Christ with the spirit that is living in us and flowing in us. But he's also talking about a body that was given to them to stand in their place as a representative and a substitute. I'm giving this bread represents my body and my body is given for you in your place and my blood is poured out for you. He is the representative and the substitute. We carry guilt. We carry shame. We try to uh, perform well. We try to project an image of holiness. We wear fig leaves because somehow we think that we have got to pay for our sin. Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, crawled upon the cross, poured out his blood, has been raised from the dead so that not only he could pay for our sin, but so that we could be free from sin and so that we who have been freed from sin will now worship him instead of trying to put ourselves in his place and somehow perform to get the favor of God. There is no favor of God to be had through personal performance. It's only when we rest in what Christ has done. And so, and we see it, we see it mentioned over and over again. Let, let me just pull in a couple of, of scriptures to, to bear um, this morning. Galatians chapter 1 and, and verse number 4. Christ dying for our sin in our place as our substitute is critically important that we understand that and that we rest in that reality 
this morning. Galatians 1.4, he says, Who gave himself for our sins. Why did he give himself? To deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Come to this table this morning and understand that there is a substitute who died for your sin and your place and be free from your sin, but in that freedom worship him. So understand that there is this connection. Understand that there is this cleansing, but also understand that because of his finished work, he as a substitute stood in our place and bore our sin And that should evoke worship from our hearts as we look at this juice and this bread. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's everything that we've seen in this passage so far in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14 says essentially the same thing. Titus says, who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You can have your blood shed, you can have your body sacrificed, you can be killed, you can die for your own sin, and you will be dead forever. For the wages of sin is death. Go it on your own and you have no hope. Be as good as you can and you have no hope because we are all sinners. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, no one for all have sinned, even the best person. Or you can receive the gift of God eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is that? It is his sacrifice. It is his blood. It is his body. And then Jesus comes to verse 19, and if you will look at it, he says, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this. Do this. Do this, it, literally, the translation would be, do this over and over and over again. Whenever you gather as the body of Christ, do this. Do this. Keep on doing this when you gather. In other words, put the gospel on display through these symbols whenever the body of Christ gathers. Do this. People say, ah, well, we do it once a quarter, that's enough. Don't you get tired of doing it? I get tired of doing this as much as I get tired of kissing my wife, and I haven't gotten tired of that in 42 years. Now, she's going to make, make me make good on that when this service is over, okay? Um. And I look, I look forward to that. Um, keep on doing this. It's, it's, the, it's the God, when we understand it, when we stop and think about his love and we think about his cleansing and we think about it, it's all dependent upon his finished work and then we stop and that evokes worship in our hearts. We're transformed in that moment. He said, do this, keep on doing this. This juice it's Welch's grape juice. And the bread came from Ingalls, I think. What are we doing? We're remembering what he has done. 
we're remembering him. We're placing this, these simple symbols in front of us. And then we're, we're doing this and we are remembering. It is a memorial. Remember my death. Remember my burial. Remember my re- resurrection. What should you remember about it? If we, if we go back to the Exodus, there, there, are, there are four things, I think, or three things specifically from Exodus chapter 12 that call us to remembrance. Number one, we should remember its costliness. Our sin costs someone their life. I've been thinking about death a lot. As you get older, you think about death a lot. Back in the day, when a motorcade passed by and there was a body in a hearse, people would pull off the road. They don't do it anymore. They'll jump in the motorcade to make sure they get to their place on time. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because life is sacred. Life is sacred. Why, why is abortion a big deal? And it is a big deal. And decisions, by the way, there were constitutional decisions made. There were not moral decisions made. And I'm all for it. I'm all for being a part of a nation. The states are going to vote We still have work to do because it is out of a transformed heart that we understand the sacredness of life. So the gospel has got to be at the core of all that we do. Does that mean that I'm not as a citizen of of a nation uh, rejoicing? Does that mean that I'm not as a citizen going to vote in ways that reflect my value for life? I certainly am, always and forever and always have. But the deal is this. This is someone that is creating the image of God. Life is sacred. Life is sacred. Life is valuable. Death is tragic. Why, why am I worried about Tim Ludlam, Tim Ludlam dying? He was 67 or April, April uh, Matowski dying. She was 39. Or Charles Barton was 90. I've had the privilege of, he's an Episcopal priest with a PhD from Boston University. And I had the opportunity to baptize him last year in a swimming pool in somebody's backyard. Why does that matter? Because their life is sacred. So so we're, we're, we're talking about a man who was perfect, who was God himself, who died in our place for our sin, and he did nothing wrong, and we did everything wrong, and he died for us, and there is great cost because of our sin. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, remember the costliness of our sin. Remember the costliness of our freedom. But secondly, remember its protection. When I see the blood, Exodus 12, I will pass over you. When I see that you are trusting me enough to do what I say in having a substitute and then having blood as a symbol of the death that has taken place resting over you, then you will be passed over and you will have protection. Remember that we are protected. It's not that we are perfect. Christ is perfect and we are being protected because of his perfection. Remember its costliness. Remember its protection. Remember its liberation. They were set free. Exodus 12. They were set free. I'm telling you today because of the finished work of Christ, you don't have to stay in your sin. You don't have to live beneath the weight of your sin. You don't have to live beneath the shame of your sin. You don't have to live beneath the guilt of your sin. You say, what if everybody knows I'm a sinner? That's fine. Let everybody know that you're a sinner. And let everybody know that you've got a great Savior. 
We don't have to run and cover ourselves with fig leaves. We don't have to put on a front. We don't have to act like we're somebody that we're not. We don't have to let Satan convince us that we can't be free and we've got to stay in our sin. We can be set free and liberated and leave the slavery of sin because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He has set us free. And then remember, it's cleansing. Remember, it's cleansing. There is therefore now no condemnation. People will bring condemnation. We love to do that. We come and we see Almighty God in the throne room of heaven saying, come boldly to the throne of grace. And we see Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, who bore our sin, our guilt, our shame, and died our death in our place, welcoming us to the table as a friend, as though we are holy to enjoy common union with him. There is cleansing because of the exclusive work of Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 20. Do this in remembrance of me, and likewise the cup after that, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, and some would say this is the third cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we go from the Last Supper to the Lord's Supper, and it's, and it's rooted not in the old covenant that we see unfolding in uh, Exodus uh, uh, 19 to 24. But it's rooted in the new covenant that's seen in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. There's going to be a, a new covenant. And what we have to understand is, is that that new covenant is the cup of blessing that he's talking about. Let me just turn, hasten back to Jeremiah chapter 31 and read that to you this morning. And Jesus adds the missing phrase um, that's not in Jeremiah 31 that, that tells us that this can be a reality and a possibility and an even greater experience looking forward to the future. Understand that he's talking to a people who have been rebellious. He's talking to a people. Here's, here's God the Father in the old covenant who has established a covenant with the people and those people agreed to live up to their half of the covenant. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And he says, I am the husband and I have lived up to all of my obligations. But Israel as the wife was an unfaithful wife. And so the old covenant is nullified. There needs to be a new covenant because one of the parties in the covenant didn't live up to the standards of the covenant. And quite frankly, they were destined to fail from the beginning because they couldn't. Because they couldn't. And so on the heels of that, we see in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, Exodus 19 to 24, on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt for my covenant, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all, all, 
know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And you say, what is the difference in the old covenant and the new covenant? There are, I'm sure, significant differences, but there are three words here that make the new covenant a possibility when Jesus says, in my blood. It's not based on my performance. It's not based on me living up to the standards of the covenant. It's based on Jesus living up to the standards of the covenant in my place. And because of all that he's done, now I can be in relationship with God the Father through the finished work of Christ. So the point of the new covenant is not based on a sinful, unfaithful people, but a faithful son who came and stood in our place, who represented us in life and death and resurrection. And when we trust him, he gives us a new nature. And because of his grace, we can be counted. We can be credited with being fully, perfectly righteous. And the terms of the covenant can be ours that were met in him because of his blood. It is the covenant in his blood. The old covenant was sabotaged by sin. But because of the work of Christ, the new covenant cannot be sabotaged by sin. Sin will not destroy your relationship with God if you are in Christ. That is good news for us this morning. There will be mutual fidelity. There will be this beautiful reality ultimately realized in the kingdom. And Jesus makes that clear. Jesus goes on to say some things in verses 21 to 23, and certainly they are important. But because of um, our time limitations, I just want to close by saying um, three things. Number one, what a helpless, hopeless mess we are in when we are in sin. What a hopeless, helpless mess we are in when we are in sin. Sin will not satisfy. It is a lie to believe that sin will satisfy. Sin will not satisfy. The only result of sin may be a temporary thrill, but eternal death. So if you are in sin this morning, can I be honest with you? If you are in sin this morning, it is not because you are worse than me. It is not because you are worse than anybody in this room. If you are in sin this morning, it is because you are not in Christ. But when you are in Christ... He gives us a new heart. He brings us into a new family. And everything changes. The second thing, there is a better way. There is the only way. It is the way that you and I were created for. It is the way of hope and healing and restoration and salvation and redemption and life and joy and relational connection and peace. And that way is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And I'm here this morning proclaiming him to you, saying believe in him, trust him, call on him. Don't go it on your own. 
Look at the life he lived and say, I'm not going to trust my life. I'm going to trust his life. I trust you, Jesus. Look at the death he died that brought us into right relationship with the Father and say, I'm not going to trust my ability to overcome death with my self-righteousness. I'm going to trust Jesus and what he did to overcome my sin. Trust his resurrection. He rose victorious over sin. And everyone that believes in him will experience resurrection. So, if you're in sin this morning, it's because you're not in Christ. And there's a far better way than sin. And I'm sorry the church hasn't done a faithful job in proclaiming that throughout history. We would say, don't do this. Stop doing that. That's bad. You're bad. Feel guilty. Do better. Just stop it. Just don't do it. Death can only produce death, but when we come to Christ, we find life. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the better way. Thirdly and finally, you say, I want that. What do I do? You give up. You submit. We've got the newlyweds over here. And... um, yeah, you guys right here, right here. The guy with the hat on. Had the privilege of doing your wedding. And at every wedding ceremony that I do, unless somebody threatens to scratch my eyes out, I have on a couple of occasions left out the word submit when I thought the folks were lost. <laughs> There's that dirty word. <laughs> There's that dirty word, submit, right? And people hate it. And women hate it. And the younger you are, the more you hate it. I ain't submitting to nobody. He's not going to control me. I'm not going to be a doormat. You know what marriage is? Marriage is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. Mar- marriage, marriage, is, marriage is, is not about the, the, primarily the flourishing of human relationships. Certainly those human relationships should flourish so that they, so they can be an accurate reflection of Christ and his church. But what marriage is is a picture of Almighty God who comes to us and says, I want you to be mine and I will die for you so that we can be in communion. I love you so much. I love you so much. Hey, who would not want to submit to a God whose mercies are new every morning? And so, while we Fight against that submission. Please understand, it's not a cultural thing. It's a gospel thing. It's a gospel thing. If you're a believer, your responsibility in getting married is to put the gospel on display. But at the very heart of that is this picture of love that would die and sacrifice everything. And love that would submit so that there could be this beautiful fellowship and relationship. And so I would call you this morning to turn from your sin and exchange it for his holiness. To turn from your death and exchange it for his life. And it can be yours this morning if you will surrender all to Jesus Christ. And when you trust him, you will experience unfathomable love through his shed blood and his sacrifice for our sin and the indwelling spirit who comes and lives within us. So, without further ado, 
I just invite you this morning to come to the table. I'm going to pray, and you come. Let your mind, let your heart, let your soul, let your relationships be transformed. Let your hearts be filled with gratitude. I just just wish the cleansing power of Jesus Christ would sweep across this room, and those of you that are in him would feel that cleansing and would feel that love and would feel that joy today as we do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray.